That smooth Christian jazz you're hearing means you've tuned in to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm your co-host, Aaron Zimmerman. I'll be joined by Jacob Smith as each week we break down the lectionary readings for the upcoming Sunday to give you something to think about, and if you're a preacher, to give you something to preach about, and no matter who you are, to give you a connection to the never-changing message of God's grace for actual people like you. Unzip that monogrammed faux leather Bible carrying case and cover, pull up a chair, and let's dig in. New year, new you, but the same old song is coming back with some gospel goodness. Hey man, we're almost at the end of January. Resolutions are over. Start looking to next new year, isn't that We can get right? back to the good old malaise, which we know yeah, so well. Absolutely. Just resignation to things as they are. Ah, well, here we are. And how are you doing, Aaron? I'm okay, although you may hear in my voice um, a little bit of the flu, which I'm getting over. So if I... If I pause for a hacking fit, that's what's going on. But we had a great um, beginning to 2024 at St. Albans, and I think all things considered, things are going going pretty well. So what about you, Jacobus? You know, we're trucking along. Every day is a new day. The ebbs and flows of parish ministry. Uh, sometimes there's more ebbs than flows, but the flows are joyful. We had our uh, just a great Sunday on Sunday. Um, even in the midst of, um, you know, recording two weeks earlier, but in the midst of a, you know, a very sleety, uh, sleety day, we're just uh, below the I-95, so we didn't get a lot of snow. We got a lot of uh, sleet, and mm. so, but people, people need the gospel, so they came out. It reminds me, there's a verse in the Psalms um, that God has shown me the wonders of His love in a besieged city, and sometimes I think mm. about, um, yeah, just you and your context and all the stuff you do. Yeah. Uh, it uh, may sometimes feel like that, but and if that's you, listener, well, we're here to help. We're, we've yeah. come to the rescue to help you with preaching for uh, the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany. We've got readings from Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 20. We've got 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13. And then our gospel passage is Mark 1, 21 through 28. So it's worth noting that in the season of the Epiphany, the whole idea is that we're um, having these revelations, epiphany, the revealing of who Christ is and the surprising things. Um, obviously, epiphany first, the revelation that we get that he's for the Gentiles, not just the people of Israel with the arrival of the Magi. And so, all these surprises keep getting revealed about who, who Christ is in this season. And so, we begin with this Deuteronomy 18, where it's a prophecy of another prophet that will come after Moses and you may think we know who it is, but mm. it's also somebody else. So, Jake, what's going on here? Well, here they are. Uh, Israel is at the, um, if you will, the, um, well, they're at the edge of the promised land, and Moses is telling them uh, exactly right uh, that there is going to come one after him um, who is greater, and uh, that he is going to uh Basically, God is going to put the words in the mouth of that prophet, and they're to hear everything that he commands. Um, and anyone who doesn't uh, heed the name, well, they're in trouble. And so, um, uh, they shall literally not just be in trouble, they shall die. And so, here they are. And, uh, you know, um, in the Old Testament, you see types and you see shadows. And so, um, and uh, in the shadow here is the, the person being raised up is Joshua. And so, and Joshua is going to be the one who's going to lead the people 
in uh, into the promised land. And uh, so, um, but what's very interesting is that, and and indeed he does. And uh, under Joshua's leadership, they have a great victory, and uh, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, and um, uh, they take on the uh, giants in the land. Uh, but what is uh, really more interesting is that who this ultimately points to, and this is the epiphany. Uh, you know, if you if you uh, read the book and the story of uh, Jericho, Joshua and Jericho, and uh, remember what was her name? The prostitute that's spared. Um, Rahab. She, uh, Rahab the prostitute. She clings to a Glad red. One of us piece knows of, the Bible. She cl- she clings to a piece of red yarn, and and uh, they uh, they say the spies say, "Hang on to this, and you won't be killed." And she does. And uh, what's in, really interesting, the Hebrew is that one of those uh, can be uh, translated as a one. That word can be translated as bloodline. And so she hangs on to the bloodline, and there, in the destruction of Jericho and everything, she's before Yeshua. Joshua and Joshua allows her to live long in the land and she actually is eventually connected to uh, the very birth of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So but this also points to a greater prophet and that is the one if you remember when the Pharisees walk out onto the bank of John uh, on the Jordan River and they ask John, "Are you the prophet?" This is what they're referencing to and he says, "I am not." And they're like, "Well then who are you?" And he's like, "I'm one of the voices crying in the wilderness." And so but the prophet to come is the greater Yeshua uh, who um uh, uh, parts the seas of uh, parts the by by virtue of our baptism parts the seas of death and uh, leads us into the promised Canaan of everlasting life and so really that is what this uh, passage is pointing to and when you talk about this particular passage you have to get it to the greater Yeshua hmm. I think that's really interesting I mean you have Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers Deuteronomy if you skip that book you get judges a bunch of like war tribes and then Ruth yeah. and uh, you know but the book that follows Moses cannot get them into the promised land. Uh, and the book that follows is um, is Yeshua, Joshua. Yeah, and uh, also we get that famous uh, title of a Lout Lovett album, Joshua Judges Ruth. Mm, Just a little shout good. out. I don't know that one. Yeah, well, good. it's worth your time, a great <laughs> Texas singer-songwriter. Um, but yeah, I think um, if you're preaching on this passage, um, I think it's it, my recommendation is uh, you connect it to the gospel reading and that there's a message here that, um, well, like many Old Testament prophecies, it's about more than one thing. There, there's, it's about Joshua, but it's also about Yeshua. And in the Mark reading where we're going to see the people hearing Jesus preach say, who is this guy? He speaks as one having authority. And so one of the things that is said um, by God to um the people in this Deuteronomy 18 passage is, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. I will put my words in the mouth of the prophet. And so, we get the sense of that when Jesus preaches in Mark 1, he speaks as one with authority. These are not just his words kind of making up, but he's speaking um, with this uh, divine uh, message that seems it, it's it's fresh and new and with authority. So, I think that's what I would... Uh, that's what I would do here. So, um, mm. yeah. So let's uh, let's move on. Uh, going to First Corinthians eight one through thirteen. Longer passage. This is the longest reading for your congregation today, um, and it's going to be about this internal debate in the Corinthian church about meat sacrificed to idols and 
people might feel like it's uh, th there is some explaining that has to be done here I think to effectively preach this but I think it's a really great passage and um, mm. uh, you know previously there was a conversation of you know the Corinthian church had written Paul about uh, everything is lawful and he says but not everything is beneficial and there was kind of a question of sexual ethics and here he's getting into another area of ethics of what Christians do and how they live out their life and um, they had used this excuse and he quotes their words back to them quote all of us possess knowledge and they had used this as a justification for eating food sacrificed to idols now why is this an issue in the first century because there was no piggly wiggly there was no whole foods there was no um uh where i live heb you couldn't just go out and buy uh, beef tenderloin you had to get meat that had been sacrificed and there really wasn't meat that wasn't ever sacrificed to an idol if you slaughtered an animal it was going to be sacrificed to some deity and um so is the early Christian community is comprised both of um, Jews who had now become Christians as well as Gentiles who had become Christians. Um, you've got people with very different sensibilities about what meat is okay to eat and is not okay to eat. So to the um, if you had been a devout Jew, even though you know that the idols to whom the meat is sacrificed are not really real things, it's still really going to be a difficult thing for you to go against your upbringing, your customs, and your religious sensibilities to eat meat, even if you know, it, you don't like the, Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law, and as we know in Acts, all things have been declared clean. Uh, Peter has that vision on the roof um, in, in Joppa. So, you can know all these things, and they're saying, we possess knowledge, we know. So, this is sort of an internal church debate in Corinth about what we can and can't do. Can we eat meat sacrificed to idols or not? Um, and for the Gentile Christians, presumably, uh, this wasn't really an issue for them because they had been eating uh, meat like this for their whole lives. And now they really understand the idols don't mean anything, so they can keep eating their cheesesteak or whatever. Um, now, to be fair, there probably were some, it, it wasn't a simple binary uh, as that. There were probably some people who maybe had been Gentiles and had eaten lots of meat sacrificed to idols, Roman and uh, Greek deities um, and other cultures as well. Maybe they now in this new monotheistic Christ following religion they have, maybe they feel weird about eating meat sacrificed to idols. So basically the argument that one side was making is if you know that the idol is nothing, it shouldn't, like we all know this, right? So we can just get on with our lives, don't have to worry about idols existing. And we can just eat whatever yeah. meat we want. No, the, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, go Did ahead. Did I cut you off? No, I mean a little bit, uh, that's fine. I mean, I think it's important, yeah, really to hit and, and preach on this con this passage. You got to, like, because food dominates chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 in, in Corinthians. This is a big deal. Uh, you know, uh, Corinth was a town where, like, uh, both pleasure and piety were intermingled. And you're absolutely right. Uh Basically, you had places like these temples and they were like sacrifice meat, animals and stuff like that. But then they had like restaurants on the side and this is where they would serve the meat up. And so the question Fresh. is, can we eat there? Yeah, can we eat there? And uh, what Paul is saying here is, is that like totally. So I remember one time I was with these. Um, and this is you can talk if I was going to preach on this passage, I would talk a little bit about idolatry. You know what I mean? When we think about idolatry, we think of like 
a funky idol with like, you know, chickens all over it. But idolatry and these things to some people are very, very real. I remember um, back when I was a youth minister a long time ago, I went with, there were these uh, missionaries uh, from um, Southeast Asia and they had come and we had like a diocesan partnership with them at the time. And they had come to San Diego to learn and talk about youth ministry. And uh, we thought, hey, you know, they're from Thailand. Why don't we have a why don't we have a dinner at a Thai restaurant? You know, we should have taken them to Mexican food or something. But anyway, we went into this Thai restaurant and there are these like idols in the place. You know what I mean? And for us, it was decorative and set the mood for Thailand. But for these people, it was serious business. And uh, they got up and uh, left and went to the Baskin Robbins across the street. And we like were like, what's going on? Well, come to find out, I mean, for a handful of them, this was serious business. And those were like, to us, it was just decor, but to them, it was real business. But we all have idols in our lives and that we're sacrificing things too, you know what I mean? Uh, whether it be, you know, I mean, New York City, you can see idols all over the place. And how, who, who isn't sacrificing something to the God of wealth and prosperity and health and all of these things? We're always sacrificing something. But what Paul is saying here. And this is important too. Like, I mean, when somebody comes out of rehab, I'm not going to bust out the celebratory champagne. You know what I mean? Congratulations. Uh, what Paul is saying here is that the governing principle in the church needs to be love and understanding. You know, uh, love and understanding. And, uh, and let love and understanding govern how we deal with people because this is what it's about. Freedom. Uh, it's not for everyone, who, however, who has this knowledge since some have become accustomed to idols now. This is what he says. They still think that food they eat is offered to those idols. And that's true. Some people really struggle with addiction. And, uh, you know, we have to be sensitive to that. So the governing principle with people around us as Christians, <clears throat> that's the point. Because idolatry is real, is love. John Calvin says it best when he writes, for the weaker brother, we surrender our liberty, for the Pharisee, never. Uh, Luther once wrote, the Christian is a slave to none and a servant to all. And ultimately, this is what knowledge and love does. This is what the gospel produces, liberty. Uh, it produces freedom, but not to build ourselves up and to exercise our own rights. This is why I get so disgusted in the church when everybody's talking about their rights and what they have a right to. No, uh, in, the, in the church, we surrender our rights in order to build each other up. Amen. And I think uh, when you're talking about idols, uh, you know, it's so interesting. You talk about going to the, where they go when they left the Thai place. Who? In your story after they refused to eat. The food oh, they went the to Baskin Robbins across the street. Which, I mean, that's you really know, they would have wanted to be. You could say that that's like, you know, not that <clears throat> restaurant in particular, but pick your, pick your chain restaurant, you know, are these institutions serving the invisible idols of let me tell you man well, i'm at 245 pounds that's an idol yeah yeah exactly <laughs> it's, or, you know it's a temp i can't um, go in there i will eat yeah. all the cookies and cream yes and chocolate chip mint yes so idolatry is a pernicious <laughs> this was sacrifice thing. to bail mm, i don't care <laughs> okay just put more <laughs> of it into my face uh yeah the i think um there the one of the things here um when talking about idols is Paul is dealing with this um, question that many Christians have. And in his context, it was, what, what am I allowed to do? I have freedom in Christ. What am I allowed to do? I'm allowed to eat at the basket Robins. Am I allowed to eat at the Thai place? Am I allowed to listen to that music or go to this conference? Can I, can I, 
drive this or drive that, or can I vote for this person or that person? There's lots of ways Christians set up these binary decisions that are sort of, um, you know, purity tests about whether you're in or whether you're out. And that's what this was in some sense. And the people that were the enlightened ones were sort of using this argument based on knowledge and and some good theological reasonings too. There, There is no God but one. Idols are mm-hmm. false, yes. But what he's saying is... Um, if if you were just trying to be arguing from pure reason about what you're allowed to do, and oh, isn't it interesting that you're arguing that you get to do the thing you already want to do? Um, he's saying you're not factoring the most important part in an ethical decision for a Christian. And That's the most right. important thing for a Christian is to ask, does my action reflect love for the other person? Because he says... If someone, he says, some have been so accustomed to idols, until now they still think of the food as offered to an idol, and their conscience is hurt by this. And so he's saying, it doesn't matter whether you eat the cheesesteak or not. You're no better off either way. But he says, but take care that this liberty of yours does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So he says, the most important thing to remember is that Christ died for your fellow brothers and sisters with whom you are having this d- debate and he says, I would never, he says, if, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat. No more cheeseburgers for me. So that's the main idea here is that you consider the fact that the people you're arguing against, yes, it's important to remember who's right and you can have strong opinions about all that stuff. But it's interesting. He says that you never, he, he doesn't argue for the majority rule. He actually kind of argues for the minority rule, like the most important person or the people are the one who are the weak. Um, the people who are in the position of strength must be very um, careful about how their actions affect the weak folks, which is a very Christian idea. You know, the last should be first, the first should be last, all that sort of stuff. So it's not convenient, not popular, yeah, nor helpful, and it won't win you any political campaigns, but it is inconveniently in the Bible. So, uh um, and by the way, if you're preaching that, don't just preach that to score points or to just present, oh, isn't Christian ethics interesting? But I think get to the heart of it for the people in the congregation, your the, the believers um, there that... I mean, all of this, yeah, all of this ultimately boils down to the right. gospel. Right. I mean, the reason this happens, you know, the reason this is true is because Jesus Christ looks at you, the weaker one, and he has yeah, compassion and, and pity on the, you. You know, if Jesus wanted to just be right... You'd be toast, but Jesus is loving and compassionate and lets you off the hook. So, yeah, it's not about it's not about food or not food, but rather it's about brothers and sisters for whom Christ yeah, died, and that being united to Christ means we're united to each other, and uh, that's what it means. And because of Christ's sacrifice, it compels me to be sacrificial for you. That's what the gospel is. Yeah, or that's what the gospel creates. Amen. So um, that is amazing. Well, now we move on to Mark 1, 21 through 28. Jesus is in Capernaum, the town that is uh, sort of his home base. It's where Peter lived, and mm-hmm. Jesus bases a lot of his Galilean ministry, northern Israel, the Sea of Galilee, from Capernaum. You can visit there and see the synagogue built 200 years after Jesus, but the floor is the same. The foundation is the same where Jesus taught this lesson. And um, you can see the remains of Peter's house and all of it. And uh, Jesus and his disciples are there and he goes in the synagogue and he teaches and you get this thing. It's um, um, uh, twice in this passage where it's mentioned that they're amazed at his teaching because he speaks with authority. Um, And then in between this amazement and his authority, we have this little story of Jesus 
rebuking a, a demon who has possessed a man and this unclean spirit and the unclean and he exercises this uh, unclean spirit which comes out of him um and you also have this unclean spirit before it's exercised naming jesus he says i know who you are the holy one of god and jesus rebukes him says be silent come out of him and the, the spirit convulses the man he cries out and then he's set free from the spirit and the news of jesus begins to spread so jake how do you preach this for your for your congregation <laughs> that's a good question <laughs> i mean this i think i think absolutely so this is all in the context of Mark chapter one and what Mark chapter one is doing is, I mean, like in a real rapid fire way, illustrating who Jesus is and what he has authority over. And uh, one of the things that we see that Jesus has authority over, which will be demonstrated in his death and resurrection, is uh, the demonic. And uh, they are completely aware of who he is and, um, and, what, he's, and what he's come to do. And this is the um, and this is the other thing is that like so he's teaching as one who has his own authority. So Jesus, see, rabbis typically referenced other rabbis, which referenced other rabbis, which referenced other rabbis, in order to demonstrate that they had great learning and authority, and uh, in their learning. And Jesus is just he's got his own authority here, uh, but this authority has the power uh, to make demons tremble. And demons recognize it. And this uh, Jesus has a power and authority then ultimately to defeat death. And he arises again. And now, because he's risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the uh, Father, he has the authority to say, as we will see later on in this chapter, your sins are Mm. forgiven and uh, you are mine. He has the authority to say to you that I will never leave you or forsake you. And uh, gosh, I need this in my life all the time. He has the authority to say, peace be with you. Yeah. And so that, and and if that doesn't amaze you, that God himself in Christ has the authority to say that to you, uh, well, wow. And he continues to meet you and has authority now in bread and wine. That's, that's right. Uh, to, uh, to meet you right where that, you're that's at. That's right. And I think <laughs> this speaking with authority... And the fact that it is immediately demonstrated by the fact that he says to this demon, come out, be silent and come out. And he, he does. The demon has no choice but to do what Jesus has commanded it to do and not do. So this authority is demonstrated so powerfully and so clearly in um, in this passage. And, and I think that's the place where you make this connect for your folks, that Jesus speaks authoritatively over them and in their lives when he says, your sins are forgiven and I do not condemn you. And I came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved in the gospel of John. All these things that are spoken by Christ are true for them because he speaks with authority. And if I could add a little PS, uh, preacher, that you would emulate your Lord Jesus Christ who speaks with authority and in a sense speak with authority. Um, I see so many preachers who every sermon, it's like eight quotes from other people, Um, whether it's Wendell Berry or Fleming Rutledge or um, gosh, if I had a nickel um, uh, for every quote of the church fathers, um, Rowan Williams is a favorite uh, oft quoted uh, person. And these are all wonderful, wonderful people, but just be careful. Uh, in that you 
your pre your congregation doesn't need an annotated bibliography to, to understand your sermon. They want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, they want to hear what you know. Has the passage connected to you, preacher? What has it said to you in your life? Mm. And convey that with the authority of someone who is a fellow um, sinner redeemed by grace uh, by the blood of Jesus, and say that to your congregation with mm. authority. And now what Rowan says, now what Fleming says, as wonderful as they are, um, but but speak as what it has said to you, because Jesus has given you something to say. So forgive me for soapboxing a little bit on that, but um, that's but a good that's, thing to soapbox on. A little word, um, and if it doesn't help, then let it be. But uh, that's a thought on that. So Jesus speaks with authority, well, as me uh, as Moses predicted in Deuteronomy eighteen, and then also talk about cheesesteaks and. First Corinthians 8. <clears throat> that's that's all you gotta do for the fourth Sunday of the Epiphany. See you next week. Somebody's looking, somebody cares. Somebody wonders what you're doing today. You know we crucified him, buried him, but three days later, well, the stone got rolled away. And yes, Thanks for listening to Same Old Song. Hope you found some gospel nuggets for the pulpit or for your life. If you like what you heard, leave a review or rating in Apple Podcasts. Dave Zoll will be sad if you don't. Thanks to TJ Hester for audio production. And remember to keep that Bible by your bedside, ready to rock and roll.